0: This episode of Why This Universe is supported by Wondrium. Wondrium is a mind-blowing subscription service that offers thousands of video and audio courses on a huge range of topics. I've been a big fan and a regular consumer of Wondrium's content for the past 15 years or so, and over that time I've listened to dozens of their courses, including ones on history, philosophy, literature, math, and even science. For me, it's like taking an intro-level university course from a great professor on a subject you've always wanted to know more about but without the big tuition fee, and all in the comfort of your own home or daily commute. Recently, I've started to listen to a series of lectures on Wondrium on the topic of Norse mythology. Over 24 lectures, this course explores how the people of the Norse culture view things like fate, as well as their place and significance in their world. Along with these more heavy questions, these lectures also contain a lot of fun stories about things like gods, dwarves, spells, and berserkers. It was a blast to listen to. So, if you want to learn more about Norse mythology or really just about anything else, you should give Wondrium a try. You can sign up for Wondrium now through our special URL to get a free month of unlimited access. Just go to wondrium.com/universe. That's w-o-n-d-r-i-u-m.com/universe.
1: You're listening to Why This Universe, a podcast where we break down the biggest ideas in physics. My name is Shalma, and I'm a PhD student at NYU.
0: And I'm Dan Hooper. I'm a theoretical astrophysicist at Fermilab and at the University of Chicago.
1: So we've talked about quantum mechanics on the show a couple times by now. In episode 2, we talked about how it was first discovered. And we talked about it again in episode 6 to walk you through all the weirdest aspects of quantum mechanics. But today we're going to go one step deeper, in some sense, into our conversations about quantum mechanics and ask... What does quantum mechanics really say about the fundamental reality of our universe? It turns out that physicists don't all agree on what quantum mechanics really says about this. Does quantum mechanics mean things like Schrodinger's cat can exist, a cat that's both dead and alive at the same time? Or does it mean that there is a multiverse out there for every possible version of the cat? That's what we'll be talking about today. And it's a special episode because you'll witness some of Dan and I really grappling with the weirdness of this stuff in real time. But we should clarify first that, despite physicists disagreeing on the philosophical meaning of quantum mechanics, they do all agree on how to do quantum mechanics. That is, how to use it to do any sort of calculation or experiment.
0: Yeah, let's like drive that home for a minute. So let's start with what this episode isn't about. Quantum mechanics works. Everyone, every physicist agrees that every, in every way we can test this theory, whether it be quantum mechanics or the more modern version quantum field theory, everyone agrees that this procedure that we worked out makes very accurate predictions for any number of measurements we can do in any number of experiments. So everybody agrees that if you want to know what the outcome of your experiment is going to be, you can use the procedures we're talking about here to, to get the right answer but where they disagree where there's a lot more contention is what all these equations and procedures actually mean about the universe what what is there out there really in the universe making these equations and these these calculational procedures give us the right answer
1: so let's start by talking about the most widely used interpretation of quantum mechanics the one that you would hear in most college or graduate school courses if you study physics. And that's what we call the Copenhagen Interpretation.
0: The way I think about the Copenhagen Interpretation is that out there in the universe, there are particles and other things that are in a superposition of states. You take a given electron somewhere, it has a variety of different locations smeared out over space, a variety of different velocities or or momenta, it contains a variety of different energies. And if it does something, it does that thing at a variety of different times. If we're talking about something like the double slit experiment, that particle goes through both slits, not just one or the other. Quantum reality is a rich superposition of many kinds of reality.
1: So let's put that in other words. In classical pre-quantum physics, You could describe the state that a particle is in with a few numbers, its position, where it is, and its velocity, where it's going, for example. But in quantum mechanics, those numbers aren't just numbers anymore. There isn't one number that could describe a particle's position, because that particle doesn't have an exact position. So instead, you need something called a wave function, a curve that spreads out over space to describe the particle's spread-out position. So the fact that this wave function spreads out over many positions shows you that a particle is not certainly here or certainly there, but is actually in both places at once. That's the principle of superposition.
0: Where Copenhagen comes in is they say that it remains that way until a measurement or observation is made, at which point that wave function collapses, taking on one value of whatever it is you're measuring. So if I'm measuring the location of an electron, before the measurement, it's in a superposition with many different locations. But then I measure it, I find it to be at location X. And um, that is what we call the collapse of the wave function. It's this transformation of the physical state that happens upon the act of observation.
1: So this collapse of the wave function is the hallmark of the Copenhagen interpretation. An observer makes a measurement of a particle, and instantaneously, that particle goes from being in a superposition of different locations to being in exactly one location, just like in classical physics.
0: The problematic nature of the Copenhagen interpretation comes down to the question of when does a wave function collapse? What will, what can, under what circumstances does a wave function collapse? Um, when I first learned about this, you know, I assumed that what really happened is when some sort of quantum object underwent some sort of interaction, it would collapse the wave function. But that's not true. Um, a, any number of kinds of interactions will not collapse the wave function. It It really does seem to be that when... A scientist conducts an experiment when they when they do a, a measurement or observation. That's the thing in Copenhagen that collapses the wave function. And, um, well, that raises a lot of questions that I can't think of any good answer to. And a lot of smart people have failed to uh, come up with a good answer to. What What's so special about the act of observation or, or, or the role of the observer?
1: So let's explore this a little more. What exactly during an observation collapses a wave function?
0: Yeah. So let's say we're doing the double slit experiment and I'm firing particles through this apparatus. Well, that, the particle I fire through interacts with the screen um, with the two slits in it and then takes on a pattern on, on, on the, the far screen and, um, it did that, and it, it continued to be in a superposition. It, it, that thing went through both slits and interfered with itself as as a as a wave. You know, as this is a, a quantum wave undergoing quantum interference. Um, its interaction with that that uh, d- double slit apparatus did not cause the wave function to collapse. It doesn't collapse until we look at the far sheet and see where that particle hit it. So. Um, yeah, it's it's not just that the it's not just that the particle in question encountered something else. It really has to be an observer and, it, that collapses the wave function, not just some inanimate uh, physical matter or something.
1: Yeah, sometimes I forget how weird this is. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's very weird.
1: And to help us capture the weirdness of the Copenhagen interpretation, let us introduce the famous Schrödinger's cat. So,
0: in 1935, one of the pioneers of quantum mechanics, Erwin Schrödinger, wrote uh, wrote this paper where he desc- he pr- described a hypothetical thought experiment. So, what I mean by a thought experiment is this is not the kind of experiment you'd ever go into a laboratory to conduct. Um, it is a exercise to help one think through what the implications of your theory really are. Um, so, you know, the, no cats are harmed in this experiment. Um, so let me describe the what Rich Schrodinger had in mind. And, and his, his apparatus is a little bit different than I'm going to describe, but, you know, there, there have been many different versions discussed over the years. This is just one example. He said, let's, let's imagine you have a, some sort of radioactively decaying substance And, uh, you have a certain amount of it so that after an hour, there's a 50% chance that some of that stuff will decay releasing radiation. Um, and because quantum mechanics is non-deterministic, we can't say for sure whether it will decay or when it will decay. We can only say that probabilistically there's a 50, 50 chance that it will or won't within an hour. So, you go on then and you say, well, let's let's hook up a Geiger counter to this thing. So if it does decay, the Geiger counter will get triggered. And then let's hook the Geiger counter up to a vial of poison. So uh, you know the Geiger counter gets triggered by the radioactive decay. The poison gets uh, released. Um, and you put all this in a big impenetrable box and you put a cat in the box and then you close the box. And then you wait an hour. So your intuition, if you're like, well, just about anyone, is that that radioactive material decays at some point, And that's at a one very specific time. And at that point, the cat dies. And after an hour, when you're about to open it, the cat is in a state in which it is either alive or dead, depending on when that uh, radioactive material did or didn't decay. But that's wrong. Schrodinger says, well, that's not true. In fact, we know that after an hour that radioactive material will be in a superposition of decayed and not decayed states. So it will be both. It will be 50% decayed and 50% not decayed, which means the Geiger counter will be 50% triggered and 50% not triggered. And the cat And the, the poison will be 50% intact and 50% released. And the cat will be both dead and alive in a superposition of those states. Now, if you take Copenhagen seriously as the interpretation, then it's only upon opening the door and observing the cat, either alive or dead, does the wave function collapse and the cat takes on one or the other state of being alive or dead. Something about the act of observation in Copenhagen forces the universe from a superposition into a solitary single, singular state.
1: Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where
0: we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features
1: insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. Right, and this is kind of just, like, illuminating how weird Copenhagen's interpretation is, right? The fact that the the cat will be dead and alive until the instantaneous moment where you open the box. You can't, like, open the box fast enough and find the cat dead and alive. Like, you'll always see it dead
0: or alive. That's exactly right. And if you just took the old equations from the 1920s, like the Schrodinger equation, this describes how quantum systems will evolve. And there's nothing about wave function collapse in this. It just says they're going to evolve. And um, the Copenhagen advocates said, well, we see things in single states. So we just have to add this ad hoc piece of wave function collapse onto that that quantum mechanical calculational tool to say, well, we open the box and we don't find a superposition. We find a cat that's either dead or alive. So let's say at that point, the wave function collapses. That's kind of their band-aid they put on this problem. And of course it raises all sorts of big questions like could a cat maybe collapse its own wave function does a cat count as an observer could a flea on a cat could a embryo of a flea could a you know i I, there's no good good answers to any of these questions um and it, it it uh leaves a lot of people including myself thinking the copenhagen view of quantum mechanics is probably untenable
1: do we know like is there a reason why this is like the textbook one by the way
0: yeah so um I'm going to recommend a a really good book called what is real by Adam Becker Um, in that he describes the history of quantum mechanics. It's not really a book about quantum mechanics itself. It's a book about the history of quantum mechanics. And he talks about like, well, just how influential Niels Bohr was in those, those important decades. And he also talks about um, this really influential, Uh, I think it was a paper, but it might've been a chapter of a book or something by John von Neumann, who, you know, was this amazing physicist and game theoretician and, and polymath and genius by any standard. But, um, in this thing he wrote in the 1930s, he claimed to present a proof for why Copenhagen was the only like viable way to think about quantum mechanics. Um, I, Adam would tell you that not many people ever read that proof or understood it, and there are holes in it that are big enough to drive a truck through. And, and it was only written in German and wasn't translated until many decades later. So, it, but John, John von Neumann carried enough clout, along with Niels Bohr, that I think people just kind of adopted it. Also, there weren't like good alternatives in the 1920s and 30s uh, to this. It wasn't really until the 1950s, that other interpretations of quantum mechanics started to kind of be explored in a serious way.
1: So let's get into talking about these other interpretations of quantum mechanics. And let me just premise this by reminding you again that while there are lots of philosophical and maybe even personal reasons to be attracted to one interpretation over others, there isn't actually any proof that any one is more true than any other. Okay, with that said, let's get into it.
0: So my favorite interpretation, and a lot of physicists' favorite interpretations these days uh, was cooked up or presented in 1957 by a grad student at Princeton named Hugh Everett III. Um, He had a very simple and very elegant response to the problems he saw with the Copenhagen interpretation. He said, we're going to take something like the Schrodinger equation, which describes how a wave function evolves, And we're going to take it seriously. We are going to say that is the right answer. After all degrees with all experiments we can do. What that means is that we're not going to add anything extra. We're not going to add this onsatz of wave function collapse. So now what that tells you is if you do the Schrodinger CAT experiment, the universe is in a superposition of decayed and not decayed radioactive material. And the, you know, the Geiger counter and the poison and the cat are all in superposition. So until you open the door, the cat is 50% dead and 50% alive in a superposition. And then you open the door and the universe at that point is in a superposition of you seeing an alive cat and you seeing a dead cat. The wave function doesn't collapse. The superposition just now extends to include the observer. Now, this strikes a lot of people as very weird. They think, I'm only, I only see one thing at a time. But whoever points out like, that's exactly what you would think you would see, the universe is bigger than you and your own perceptions. It requires a quantum multiverse, uh, many mini worlds, many mini quantum worlds, where all of these quantum uh, realities play out simultaneously. And in some of those worlds, you're seeing an alive cat and some you're seeing a dead cat. Um, in each one of those timelines or worlds or however you want to think about it, you see only one or the other. But in the greater quantum multiverse, there are examples of beings very much like you seeing both.
1: So to be clear, the Everett multi-world interpretation of quantum mechanics, like it really does argue that there is a universe out there where each reality is happening.
0: That's right. Every single piece of the quantum wave function, including every possible outcome of these quantum mechanical experiments or just ordinary occurrences, is physically realized in the quantum multiverse, according to Hugh Everett III.
1: So in the multiverse interpretation, when you go to open the box with Schrodinger's cat in it, you're not actually collapsing the wave function of the cat. Instead, you're entangling yourself with the cat so that you're also in a wave function with the cat in the box. Then there's one branch of the multiverse where the cat is dead and you see it dead. And there's another branch of the multiverse where the cat is alive and you see it alive.
0: Whenever something interacts enough with its uh, environment, it tends to become quantum entangled with that environment. You know, so the, the famous example of quantum entanglement was uh, a variation of something put forth by Einstein in this famous EPR paper. And in that paper, he imagined, uh, you know, something uh, like decaying and sending two particles out. And if one's spinning in one direction by the conservation of angular momentum, the other one must be spinning in the opposite direction, but you don't know if which combination that is, is clockwise, 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 counterclockwise, whatever, um, you know, but you know, they have to, to balance each other out. And, in, and when you observe one, you find out what the other one's state was, as it turns out. That's that's the sub- supposed paradox in the EPR paper. But if you just, more generally speaking, say you have a, an electron and it travels through the room and it interacts with any number of other things in it, it will very quickly become entangled with its environment. And once something is sufficiently entangled with its environment, it will suppress the kinds of interference that quantum mechanics usually predicts. So, you know, if, if I'm an electron and I'm entangled with 10 to the some large number of, of particles around me um, in such a way that which state I'm in depends on all the states that they're in, well, it probably means that I'm basically in one state at this point. Um, so people who are who talk about this. And by the way, we're calling this decoherence. This is where this is the process of quantum decoherence, where um, the interference is suppressed. um, That is normally part of quantum mechanics and things start to behave more like they do in classical physics, pre quantum physics, once they become uh, decoherent. Um, And this, it kind of looks like the wave functions being collapsed, but in fact, there's, there's really no wave function collapse in the Copenhagen sense going on here. It's just, uh, if you interact with enough particles in your environment, it kind of creates the illusion or the, uh, the perception of something like wave function collapse.
1: Okay, so what would you say to somebody who heard about the many worlds interpretation and finds it really problematic that anytime things interact, a whole new universe is supposedly made?
0: Yeah, so here would be my response. So I'm assuming this person like knows a lot about quantum mechanics and knows that it works. Um, and I point out that everyone who's, whether they're a Copenhagen or a Everettian quantum mechanics advocate, agrees that that is what's going on before any observation. So um, when I send a particle through a double-slit experiment, um, when it goes through the... The sheet with the slits in it, it enters in a superposition, or it, it, it's it, uh, it, it it creates it branches, okay, in the same way that you would say it, the the world does when when an observer makes a uh, a measurement in uh, in the Verdian quantum physics, and no one thinks that's problematic. I mean, it's weird, but like we've all accepted that that's true. Um, the only difference is that does that also happen when somebody makes an observation? That's the only difference between Copenhagen and uh, Everettian quantum mechanics.
1: So Everettian quantum mechanics, or the many worlds hypothesis, removes the need for observations to be anything special. And so a universe can totally make sense despite having no observers in
0: it. So there's one other kind of big class of ideas that we haven't talked about yet. um, That's neither Copenhagen nor... Uh, Everettian quantum mechanics. And this falls under the umbrella of what we call hidden variables interpretations of quantum mechanics. This is a long history. It goes back to Einstein and and Louis de Broglie and others in the early days of quantum mechanics who were trying to make quantum physics like a lot more like classical pre-quantum physics. They said, well, you know, we can think of lots of examples in classical physics where things seem indeterministic Um, but in fact, we know that they're totally predictable. So like, I don't know, let's say I just take a a six-sided die and um, I'm trying and the the only data I can do is trying to measure things about this dice. And I try to predict from things about the die, what number will come up when I roll it. Well, this won't be a very good theory um, it, I won't be able to, you know, in any realistic way ever come up with a, a good prediction for how that die will land. The, I'll just wind up with a theory that says a sixth of the time I get a one, another sixth of the time I get a two, et cetera. And we know, though, from the laws of classical physics that if you knew exactly the speed and rotational speed of that die and its location, and you knew the location and velocity of every air molecule it was going to touch and every air molecule and the table you were rolling it on and not air molecule, every table molecule and everything else, you could accurately predict how that die would roll and what number would come up. So deep down, classical physics is totally predictive, but in practice, it looks um, probabilistic. Einstein and de Broglie and others thought, well, maybe quantum mechanics is this way too maybe there isn't really a superposition. Maybe Schrodinger's cat is all along either dead or alive, not and, or. And it just seems to be in a superposition because for the same reason, we can't actually predict how that die is going to fall. There's some variables in the theory we don't know about. Um, and if we knew about them, included them in a more complete version of quantum mechanics, all of this would look more sensible. It would look more predictive. It, it, w- it would look deterministic. And there would be no role for superposition. And in Einstein and the Role and others didn't know what these hidden variables were. B. They would they would say that, but we we could posit that there might exist such things that would make all this quantum weirdness um, unnecessary. And this is where popular like class of ideas uh, popular is really maybe an overstatement, among the very small number of physicists who were concerned about these sorts of problems. These were a popular class of ideas. It was a small group, but it was a a big fraction of the small group. Um, But this all changed um, starting with work by John Bell in 1964. So he wrote a paper um, in which he presents something we now call Bell's Theorem, and he said, he, he could prove this. He said, if you make two assumptions, namely, the first assumption is that uh, quantum mechanics describes like uh, microscopic objects with real properties um, that determine outcomes of real experiments. In other words, there are there are actual things out there. They're not in some complicated superposition, but things are in one place at one time, et cetera. And secondly, you assume locality, which means that you can't, Uh, have two objects at different locations influence each other instantaneously. It takes a finite amount of time to travel, uh, have information travel across space. If you assume those two things, the reality, quantum mechanics, and locality, then there must be correlations between certain kinds of observable quantities you could look for in certain kinds of quantum mechanical experiments. So in the 1970s, people started doing these experiments And one after the other, they showed violation of this theorem. They didn't see the correlations that John Bell said had to be there, which means that at least one of those two assumptions is false. When it comes to locality, it's really hard to imagine that the universe is not local in the way that matters for this. Um, The theory of relativity says nothing can move through space faster than light. Um, look if violation of locality would definitely violate relativity, but also it means, you know, if if you, if you, if you really get information across space faster than light, then you can send information backwards through time. And that leads to a lot of logical paradoxes and things. So if I were to make a wager about which of our assumptions about the universe are going to hold up to scrutiny in decades or centuries or millennia or something, locality would be a pretty good bet, in my opinion. I think that that's probably going to be true all the way down. So that means that the other assumption, this uh, kind of well-defined reality of quantum mechanical systems all the way down, that can't be true, which means that the kind of hidden variable solutions the quantum mechanics can't be the answer.
1: Okay, so we're nearing the end here. We talked about the Copenhagen interpretation, the many worlds interpretation, and finally the hidden variables idea. But in 2020, what are most physicists inclined to believe about quantum interpretations?
0: I'll say this, like, I've spent a lot of hours over beers talking with physicists about interpretations of quantum mechanics. And I've never met somebody who thought this was an interesting question and had spent time thinking about it in depth. And still thought Copenhagen was the way to go. I've not encountered that.
1: That being said, most physicists don't really think about this question of quantum interpretations at all.
0: By far the most popular notion, like if you just went out among actual professional physicists and asked what they think about this, I think the single most common answer you'll get is something that is usually paraphrased as the shut up and calculate interpretation of quantum mechanics. So this is an entirely instrumentalist point of view. Uh, it it doesn't, it literally doesn't care about the question we're asking. It's saying like, well, all that matters, all that science is trying to do, is show you how to make predictions for what you will observe. And quantum mechanics in Copenhagen or Everett or whatever, you know, they they always agree on their predictions, and therefore we don't need to take sides on this debate in order to use quantum mechanics successfully. So, you know, I don't know, to me, this is just too interesting to not have an opinion on and not think about. Um, But to a lot of physicists, they will happily sweep this question under the rug, never to be looked at again and um, just proceed to do their calculations correctly. At least when it comes to Copenhagen versus many worlds or ever ready in quantum mechanics, there's no measurement you can ever do to differentiate between the two. I think that is just a, a valid blanket statement. There are other interpretations that could have different interpretate, you know, diff- different uh, observational consequences. But if, if you're really talking about those two, there there's nothing you could ever do to differentiate.
1: So I guess I guess it maybe does make sense to relegate this question of quantum interpretations to like maybe a more f- philosophy domain than physics.
0: Yeah, and it, and this is a question that serious philosophers of science uh, talk about. Um, I mean, I just I just find fascinating, and I, I like uh, in my classes just trying to bring up the question of what would it mean um, for a theory that agrees with every observation that could ever be hypothetically constructed for it to be wrong. I think if you want to call that thing wrong, you might not be using the word in the same way that the scientific method says you should be using the word. The scientific method says um, the way you get to truth is by, you know, doing experiments and seeing if the predictions come out the same. If every, like every hypothetical measurement you could ever do agrees with the predictions of the theory, then according to the scientific method, that is a correct theory. And you could easily imagine um, a case where there were multiple theories that made the same correct predictions, and then trying to figure out which of those theories is true. Well, I mean, maybe that's not even a. V- valid question to posit in the first place. Philosophers of science call this the problem of the underdetermination of theories. So any set of data you would ever have could be explained by a large or maybe infinite number of theories. Um, I, I think that could probably be proven. And if that's true, then um, we never really know we have a right answer. We just know we have a, uh, an answer that works
1: and this may just be a pretty unsatisfying answer. No matter how well our theories of quantum mechanics hold up to experimental scrutiny, we may never be able to really know what truth the theory holds at the fundamental level.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, for the most part, physicists make pretty bad philosophers. It's not what we're trained to do, and it's maybe not what we're inclined to do. Um, but for more philosophically-minded physicists or more physically-minded philosophers, I think we've just come to have to come to accept that um, we won't always be able to know that the theory that we are advocating and teaching in our classes and writing it down in textbooks is necessarily a good description of the underpinnings of our universe. That might be something we don't have access to. Um, What the scientific method allows us to do is a very special thing, a very specific thing. And it turns out a very, very powerful thing, but it might not be able to do that.
1: Today's episode was produced and edited by me, Shalma Wegsman. My co-host is Dan Hooper, a professor of astrophysics at the University of Chicago and Fermilab. Dan is also an author and has written many books, including most recently, At the Edge of Time, Exploring the Mysteries of Our Universe's First Seconds. Thank you for all your support and for listening to our show. If you want to support us even more, you can subscribe to our Patreon, where you can ask us questions for exclusive Ask Us Anything episodes, as well as get the ad-free versions of our regular episodes. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash universe.